Good morning again. So we've had a little bit of a break in this series. We're going to jump back into it today, and so I'm going to kind of catch you up a little bit on it. We're in part five, and what we've been really looking at over the course of the last several weeks is as we've been reading through the New Testament together through community Bible experience, uh, and if, if, you, if this is your first time here or you weren't here while we were talking about this, our entire church is going through the New Testament together and reading through it entirely and then kind of conversing about it in small groups. And we're using this series as kind of a, an umbrella to the uh, reading through it. And what we've been saying is that, that uh, Jesus was sent to the earth by uh, our Heavenly Father to address the mess that we see. And we began the series by talking about how all of us, uh, as a prerequisite to following Jesus, have to be a mess. And every single one of us, as we look at our lives, is a mess. And then we've been looking through how the Holy Spirit came to address that within us and how we are to... Um, find ways to live uh, new patterns. And then today we're going to actually turn a corner and we're going to begin to talk about how it is that God today, in today's day and age, desires to impact and influence and address the mess that we see all around us. And you don't have to go very far. You don't have to look very long to find that there is a mess in our world. And so we started with this thought that's run the gamut of the series, and it's this, that I know a mess when I see a mess because I am a mess. And so we can very quickly identify uh, people's messes all around us. And some of the people's messes around us annoy us more than others. Uh, we tend to judge them. We tend to condemn them for them without realizing or recognizing that actually the only reason that you know that that thing or that person or that situation is a mess is because you are a mess. You can easily identify it because you're a mess too. And that might not be your kind of mess. You might not be wrestling with the same mess. But the truth of the matter is, is that you are a mess in some other way that they are not. And so we've, we've begun to say and approach, okay, how, how is it that God has come to address all of this mess within all of us? Because the one thing that we have in common with each other in this room is that we are absolute, fallen, failed, broken, messy people. And the one thing we can say as we look out in the world and we look at our neighbors and our coworkers and we look at... Uh, uh, the community in which we live and we assess that and we look around and, and in some ways maybe we're appalled at the behavior or conduct or attitudes of people around us. Every single one of us is a mess. That's what we have in common with everybody around us. And so we've, we've talked about how we actually have more in common with people who don't believe or don't follow than we have actually indifference. I think what happens is far too often as the church begins to understand or think that it is separate from, it is different, it's more holy or righteous than. And, and really, it's losing sight of this fact that we really are a mess. And the thing that we have in common with every person around us, no matter what issue they wrestle with, the one thing we have in common with them is that we are messy. And we took a look out of John chapter 13 uh, as we ran through this series, and it says this, verse 35, by this, Jesus says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. And what is the this? The this is if you love one another. And so we spent a few weeks talking about the one another's and what that looks like to uh, be in relationship with one another, to uh, have patience with one another, to be kind to one another. And what we decided in that conversation is that the church really hasn't gotten this right. And what's happened is people get upset with people in church. They get upset with the leadership of a church. They get upset with their experience in that church. They get upset with something that's said to them at church. And so they leave that church and they go to another church as if you can leave a church and go to another church. And you'll discover here why that's impossible in a minute. 
But what happens is, in the midst of church conflict, we forget that really what's going on in this room or in these relationships, sets of relationships within a church community, is this is practice for what's supposed to be shifting and going on out there. That really what's to take place within our small groups, our Bible studies, our servants teams, our ministry teams that we get together and invest with each other, when we are in relationship with one another, this is actually where we get to practice this so that when we go out into the world, we are then to live it in a context that is far more difficult. So here's the sad part about the, the, the state of the church today. We don't get this right internally, do we? We're not very good about this in North America. And then we wonder why the gospel suffers in making an impact out in the world, because we can't even get it right in here, let alone for God to drive it and take it out there. If we fail to live it in here, we will never, ever live it out there. So the whole point of getting into a small group, being in a service team, being in relationship with people, connecting on a level with other people is you are a mess, congratulations, and so am I, and we need to practice what it looks like to live as a community in such a way that God would have for us as a healthy people. And out of that practice of forgiving and reconciling and apologizing and being gracious to one another, being patient with one another's differences, out of that, we are built then to go out and do that into a world in which we have even less in common with. You following that? Okay, so... This week, we, are to, we were to have read through John and First and Second Peter and I think Jude. Wasn't that the case, Jude? Okay, so we're avoiding Jude. I have never preached on Jude. I will never preach on Jude. <laughs> Go read Jude and you'll find out why. But um, the point is, is that we are in the book of John, which is uh, one of Jesus' disciples who sat down and chronicled Jesus' life. And we're also in First and Second Peter, who was written by Peter, who was one of Jesus' disciples, and he was writing to the church in the first century about how to live this out. So we're going to jump into those two texts. The text that we're going to jump into first is going to be John chapter 17, and this is where Jesus actually, we get a glimpse of Jesus praying for his disciples, okay? And, and this is really kind of an, a neat thing because you don't get many glimpses at somebody's prayer, let alone the Son of God. And we get a glimpse, an inside look at him praying for the church, for his people, for his disciples, his followers. And so it's a very intimate look at this. In John chapter 17, let's jump off in there. We're going to see in verse 20, Jesus says to his heavenly Father as he's praying, my prayer is not for them alone, meaning not just the disciples, not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me. So Jesus is not just praying for the disciples, the people who are already followers, who have been enlightened as to who he is and what he's come to do and be, but he also begins to pray in a futuristic tense, for the people who have yet to come to believe. So here's the amazing part about this. Over 2,000 years ago, the Son of God came to earth, humbled himself, emptied himself of all power to be a servant for you and for me. And back then, as we read over 2,000 years ago, he prayed for you and for me before we ever believed. That's an amazing thing. That is a very humbling thing to think that before you found revelation of who God is, and maybe today you still have yet to find it, Jesus has already prayed for you. And I just think that's a beautiful thought we need to pause on for a second. And he prayed for those who had yet to believe in him through their, tying back up to the disciples, through their, so Jesus is praying not just for the disciples 
who, and followers of Jesus who are going to go out and are going to take this message of hope and reconciliation of who he is, but he prays for the people that receive it or are going to receive it, through there, the disciples or followers message that. And, and here's the amazing part about this. What would he pray, do you think? What do you think Jesus would pray? What would you pray at this moment? If you were praying for the followers of Jesus to carry forward a mission into the world, to be the hope of the world, to be uh, the world's light in shining and directing people toward Jesus, what would you pray in that moment? Because it's actually quite surprising what Jesus prays. Here's what he prays in that context of the thrust of the mission being sent out from the church. That all of them may be one. That's interesting, isn't it? Not that they would be empowered or endowed with the Spirit. Not that they would in some way come to some uh, realization of how to culturally relate to the atmosphere at the time. He didn't pray for strategies. He didn't pray for um, any type of methodology. He didn't pray for boldness for his disciples or his followers. He didn't pray for any of that. The curious thing about what Jesus prayed for when it came to the mission of the church is he prayed that the church would be one, that there would be oneness. And so this is going to be sort of unpacked here as we go. But he prayed, interestingly enough, that they'd all be one. It's kind of fascinating. And then he says, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, continuing with the prayer, he says, may they also be in us. So there's this, this relationship, this symbiotic relationship. May they also be in us with the result that, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is a kind of a curious thing to say, don't you think? So when Jesus prays for the mission of the church to go out and address the mess, he prays specifically that they would be unified. Not emboldened, not impassioned, not given over to some methodology. He prays that they're one. With the result that the world may believe that you had sent me. So here's the interesting part of this. Let's, let's pull this apart a bit. If the world is going to know that the Father sent Jesus to it, it is contingent upon and is necessary that the church be unified. This is what Jesus is saying. That, that w without us being on the same page, without us all being together in the same direction, the world won't know. That's why the one another's are so important. That's why the, the practice that's to take place within the relational, formational kinds of things that take place in this room are to happen in such a healthy way. Because anything outside of that stifles the entire mission of what Jesus came to do. If we want the community of Arnold and Murphy's and Angel's Camp and any place in between up to Bear Valley to know who Jesus is, it is incumbent upon us to be unified. Not endowed with the Spirit, not having the right methodology, not being seeker-sensitive, not whatever. Being one. Being together. Being unified. It's contingent upon that whole thing. Continuing on. He says, so that they may be brought to what? Complete unity. Jesus' prayer for followers is that they would be unified as one. As one. And here's the amazing part of that. The reason that that's the case is because the church is really the body of Christ. 
That's what the church is. You know this. I mean, if you've been to church for so many years, you would hear this. If you haven't, then, then know that the analogy of a body that is unified, and some people function as hands and some as eyes, and some have different roles within the church, that we are really a body, and a body is unified. I didn't wake up this morning and my arm go running off. You know, I didn't wake up and, like, I looked down and my arm had decided it didn't want to be part of my body anymore. That, first of all, it would be a nightmare, and hopefully I would wake up and my arm was there. But the point is, is that my body is unified. It stays within itself. It is connected to itself. So, so when, when somebody within a church says, you know what, I don't like that church, I'm going to go to a different church, it's like my finger jumping off and saying, I don't like that hand, I think I'll go find myself another hand and attach to it. It doesn't work that way. That's not how bodies function. So the church is a body, and the church is not only a body, but it's the body of Christ, which means it's the presence, the very presence of Jesus on this earth. Now, here's the amazing part about that. The closest that anybody will ever get to coming into contact with Jesus in this world today is his church. That's a beautiful thought. That's a beautiful thought. And so people have their opinions, and they get their opinions from the church in their community. And unfortunately, churches don't get this right a lot, do they? They don't. And so here's, here's what we need. Here's what we need as we talk about kind of where this is all going, and that is that, that every part, if we bring that up, each part has a part to play. So each part has a part to play within a body. This part does a certain part and a certain role, and another part does a different role. I have a different role within the life of this faith community than other people have. It's no more important. It's no less important. What I'm doing up here is no different than Carrie Ann holding babies in the nursery absolutely no different at all. Now, I know that we like to make it that way because we take people who do my job and we put them on TV and we think they're famous, and the people that are serving in the nursery will never be known. You see, we do that, not God. We celebrate those things, not God. And so the point is, is that every single one of us has a role, and every single one of us has an important, vital role within the life of of the church. Continuing in his prayer, he says this as it moves into the next verse, 23, then the world will know. Then it will know. And so all of us sit around and we're kind of confused. Why aren't people like curious about who Jesus is? Because they've come into contact with the church. And they've lost curiosity. That's my story. That's my story. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them. Oh my goodness. Not only is the message of Jesus incumbent upon the unity of the church, but people knowing that God loves them is incumbent upon the church being unified. Are, are, is any of this sinking in at all for us? Uh, this, is, this is huge. This is, like, this is a huge revelation that the way the world will know that Jesus actually loves them is how the church conducts itself within the context of its community. So he says... They will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And so here's, here's the crux of this whole thing. We get this right, if we can bring that up, and people believe. But if we get this wrong and we become the reason they don't believe. This is what's being said in the prayer. And church, I want to get this right. <laughs> I, I believe we can get this right. Uh, chapel's got its story, its history, its sordid past, but I'll tell you, chapel has a beautiful present and even a more hopeful future.
Because this church came together last Sunday night and loved the community. But it took every one of us. It didn't take some of us. It took every one of us. We had more of you involved in setting up, well, they were to be trunks, but they ended up becoming stations. We had more of you involved than any other year past. And we made a bigger impact, I believe, than we had in every, any other year past. All because, because you decided to be the church. And you know what? Those of you that participated who had never participated before, it was actually kind of fun, wasn't it? It was. It was actually a joy. So jumping into 1 Peter then, we see in ver- chapter 4, verse 10, it says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to do what? To serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. In the next verse, if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. Now I want to take you back to a slide that I skipped. Thank you for keeping up with me. And that is our mission statement, which looks like this. If we could jump back over there to that. I know I'm giving you the runaround. But our mission statement is this. You see it on our bulletin and all of our kind of publications. Cultivating people to be planted in Christ, growing in relationship, and fruitful in serving the world. This is who we are to be as a, as a body of people. Planted together with our commonality in Jesus, growing in relationship, which means loving one another, serving one another, being gracious to one another, being patient with one another, all the one another's, and fruitful then, carrying that out through our rootedness in Jesus, our connectedness with each other in relationship, carrying that out into being fruitful in serving the world as 1 Peter chapter 4 just talked about. I want to take a minute and I want to start with uh, a little background. And I like to do this every now and then because I think we forget who we are and where we came from. So you've heard before that chapel started as a uh, small little gathering of people that had a mission together. And I just want to ask you, I'm going to ask you a question if you've been involved in the research of the history of chapel, I don't want you to answer because you'll know the answer to this. But I just, we're going to have a little participation here. Don't be afraid to shout out. It's okay. It's church. You can talk. It's a good thing. Okay? What ministry within chapel that is currently going, okay, what ministry within chapel that is currently running would you say is the oldest ministry at our church? Fellowship and service, I heard that. What else? Do-witters, I heard that. What else? The nursery? <laughs> okay. What else? Worship? Okay. Yeah. Here, here's the amazing part about this. The oldest ministry that started before the church even began to have public worship with pastors and music and gatherings like this in this room, before this church even had a building, do you want to know what the original oldest ministry was? Children's ministry. Chapel started as a Sunday school to children. That's it. In 1940, a group of people who were living uh, over in White Pines and were part of the mill community looked around the community and saw that there was nothing for their kids. That their children, the future spiritual life of this community was non-existent. And a group of people got together who were not paid who were working very hard, decided that they needed to do something about that. And so they started a children's ministry. That's what they did. If there were no children's ministry, chapel wouldn't exist. So they started a Sunday school and they began. And so in 1940, 
as a Sunday school that was conducted by volunteers. There was nobody even paid. There was no staff, no office, no institution. It was a group of people just like you who were busy, who were invested in other things, who were trying to take care of their families, who were trying to make a living, who were trying to fight the snow. They were people just like you who saw a need and met it. That's how chapel started. No pastor came in here with a dream. No group of people said, you know what, we think we're going to start this thing and impact the community. It, it started as a children's ministry. It started with a group of people who were unpaid, who decided that the future of the church was at stake and they needed to do something about it. Why do you think we continue to talk about our family ministries and the importance of it? Because we just want to put you to work? No. No. Because we are going to honor what these volunteers did 70 years ago, and we're going to continue to honor what they did in this community by continuing to pour into the next generation of kids. Carrie Ann, thank you for being a part of that, even though you don't even live here, because it's humbling to the rest of us who won't or have yet to invest, and it's our community. That's humbling. It's very humbling to us. This is a quote out of this document that was put together, and it says on the front, it's funny, it says, Future Chapel. You can see it's a drawing of the building. And so this was put together before they even had this place built. And 40 people got together, and they decided, out of this Sunday school kind of that was thriving and going, they decided that they needed to build a building. And so this is the building, the footprint that you sit on now. The original building is right here. We're sitting in it. That they built, and it seats like two, I don't know, this, there's a sign in the back somewhere. It's supposed to seat like 260 or whatever. I don't look at it, especially if the fire chief's around. But anyhow... The point is, is that this place holds quite a few people, and 40 people started it with a vision that, that it would fill up and it would have an impact in this community. These people, these people who are all gone, no longer exist, started this place. And they put out this program to talk about it with this sketch of what this place would look like, and for them it was only a dream. It was only a dream. And yet you and I sit in the new reality of their dream. You are the fulfillment of somebody's hard work and dream. And this is what's written in this little program. The, the chapel was started in 1940s, a Sunday school, and conducted by volunteers. Can I show you something else that's pretty amazing about this? Here's what else it says on the back part of this, okay? Here's what it says. The chapel in the pines exists to serve. Oh, that's interesting. They must have read 1 Peter chapter 4. Chapel in the pines exists to serve. Its primary task, that was these people said, its primary task is to reach men and women for Jesus Christ. That's what we're about as a church. That's what we are about as a community of people. Now, where does this all land? This is where it lands. You've got some things in your bulletin that look like this. We need you to invest. We need you to invest. We need you to honor the people who had a dream, and you and I are the fulfillment of that dream. Because when you invest, when you begin to serve, when you begin to get in relationship with other people, when you begin to give of yourself, that is when the world begins to hear the hope of who Jesus is. And no role is more important than another, and we need you to invest. And so we've got these opportunities for generosity, which you've seen. Take this out. Find a place. Get connected. We're making this as easy as possible. You can check off a thing. Just leave it on your seat on the way out. If you want to in some way become, just get your feet wet, this is a wonderful way to do that. This um, uh, 
heading to Bethlehem deal that Jill has pulled together through Clubhouse. If you didn't get to be part of Trunk or Treat, this is a great way to do it. There are going to be stations all throughout the under part of this building, and it's going to be open to the community, and kids are going to come through, and they're going to experience what it would be like to go from station to station during the census and during the birth of Jesus, the nativity. So it's kind of like a live nativity kind of deal, all right? But we need people to invest in that. We need this church to come together, to be unified, to be one in its mission, for all of us to embrace and agree that our primary task is to reach men and women for Jesus Christ. When all of us come around that mission, we can be invested together. And then we can fulfill the prayer that Jesus had for us. And so if you are in any way curious about how you can help within this uh, journey to Bethlehem thing, it is on this sheet under Clubhouse. Just check off, I'd be willing to help with a night in Bethlehem. That would be an easy, one-off way to invest yourself in the life of the church that started only because of children. And you would be honoring the legacy of the people who came before us, and you'd be fulfilling the mission of who we are going forward. And then, this is what we need. Everybody to be somebody in this body. We need you to be somebody, because somebody opened this building this morning for you to come in. Somebody turned on the lights. Somebody is running stuff up there for you. Somebody shook your hand when you came in the door and handed you this. Somebody is watching your kids downstairs and teaching them about who Jesus is and fulfillment of the vision of this church from all those years ago. Somebody is holding your baby. Somebody's doing something, and we need everybody to be somebody in this body, and this is why. I'm going to leave you with this final thought. If you have benefited from it, whatever it is, we need you to participate in it. If you have benefited from it, we need you to participate in it. And it doesn't matter where your skill level is. It doesn't matter what your gifts are. Every single one of you has a place, and we will help you find it. So we are unified. We are unified in our direction as a church. It is what unifies us going forward.